Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Never Strays Far is brought to you by Chapter 3 and the Roadbook Cycling's Definitive Almanac. You can buy the very few remaining 2018 and 2019 first editions as a special bundle price for just £55 by visiting www.theroadbook.co.uk. And if you enter the discount code CLASSIC, we'll throw in a free musette, and they're very beautiful, worth £7.50 with every order. And Chapter 3, the brand I created, founded in 2015, and it's uh, something that I've uh, always wanted to do, is bring to cycling a a more creative individual style that isn't just based on one discipline, but multi-disciplines. And we're on the journey, and I hope you'll join us. Go to chapter3.com and see what we've got. Uh, There are lots of stories, there's products, there's uh, everything we hope that will help you find your next chapter in cycling. Stage one of the Dauphiné, 218.5 kilometres in length, the longest of the five stages of the Dauphiné. It ran from Clermont-Ferrand, which is one of those places in France which uh, we often go to, and I never know where to put it on the map exactly. There are many places in France like that, uh, finishing in a place I've never heard of, saint christophe en jarez um, And it was, David, a fantastic bike race to watch. It was great. I absolutely loved it. It, it was yeah it was really great i enjoyed it because there were so many and this is where you enter into the kind of the the height of the season albeit it's a, a few months late where you you remove yourselves from from the narrative of the 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 course and the history to kind of the soap opera of the people taking part and this is there's so many big players there and there's so much at stake and so i could hear us uh, even kind of kind of project myself out going already deep into kind of all the things we love which are all the subplots which is brilliant and that's uh it's probably the only time in uh, well it might happen over and over again depending on what happens the next few years but the new normal but this is going to be an amazing Dauphiné I think so I hope so I think we both got quite excited today by what we saw I, I, I we shouldn't let it pass without I think um noting uh, how uh, impressively brittle the breakaway was today. Uh, it was a classic Dauphiné breakaway. Everyone was there for a reason, right? So there were five men originally, one of whom was Niccolo Bonifazio, the sprinter, uh, who lives actually on the Cipressa. He comes from the Cipressa. So, of course, it's his family at Milan San Remo who normally set fire to the mountainside. Lovely. Uh, and do you remember he did that amazing descent off the, the Cipressa flares. last year? Exactly, exactly. Um, but he didn't. I, I was at, obviously I was at Milan San Remo, and I didn't see anything from Bonifazio this year. So he's obviously come to the Dauphiné to make good on what he failed to do at mm. the Strade Bianchi. And besides, he's a sprinter. So what's he doing here anyway? Like a crazy race to come to. So he got in the breakaway. Um, so too did your old teammates, Tom Yelteslachter, the Dutchman who rode with you at Garmin and probably had his best years to be there. honest back then when he took yeah. the tour down under and some other stuff. Um, and then some kids, really. Um, 
there was a rider called Quintin Hermans, uh, who's a cyclocross rider from the Wanty Circus group, group Circus Wanty Circus team. And, um, <laughs> and there was a, a young neo pro from Lotto Sudal, the Belgian under 23 time trial champion, Brent van Moer. Now, first of all, what happened? Bonifacio got dropped. And just uh, um, uh, abandoned the race. Just, just couldn't hold nervous. the pace. So just to he just, just couldn't to... hold the pace, and then he, then the team said, "Yeah, but he had a bad back, you see." So he said he's got a bad back. Um, and then shortly after that, Quinton Hermans, who was leading the King of the Mountains competition, and uh, Brent van Moer crashed mysteriously, and both simultaneously abandoned the race. And that left uh, Mickey Cher out there all on his own, the super domestique from CCC. Um, but not for long, because Tom Yelteslachter did a Yelteslachter and just dropped off. And so Mickey Cher was on his own. And then, David, it all went boom. And you called it a micro-attack. Yeah. And it came from Remy Cavagna, didn't it? Yeah. And um, Cern Kraut Anderson, who rode across eventually to him. Yeah. No, they didn't, know because there was a counter-attack. There's a, few, them, there's a few things really to this. I'm just, Do you remember that? I'm just going to give some caveats to because you summed all this up for me. And uh, I was like, wow, uh, that breakaway, it does genuinely feel like the most 2020 breakaway in history where you get in <laughs> it, everything's right, and then all of a sudden it all falls to pieces. And I really enjoyed that kind of, it was such a lovely and like uh, allegorical tale of what's happening to everything at the moment, watching that breakaway fall to pieces from a distance. And then the second part, which I, Clément Ferrand, and I, this is because I didn't live in the UK much, it always reminds me of a place called Rugby in the UK, where everybody knows it exists, but nobody knows where it is. That's genius. Am I right? Does that make sense? That is, that's completely genius. It's rugby, isn't it? It's, it's rugby. Somewhere and nowhere. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So those are those yeah. are my two pick up points from what we just talked about, but yeah, when the, when the race after the twenty twenty breakaway had fallen to pieces and just self destroyed itself, share uh, you taught me it's he's share, uh, not because I've always called him Shah because he's share uh, right. Yeah, it is. well, he's got an umlaut on the A, so, so you pronounce it like air, like that. Mm-hmm. But he's probably one of those riders, his English is so immaculate, who's just given up trying to correct, correct kind people. of, you know, anglophone yeah. pronunciation of his name and has just yeah. embraced it, you know, so, yeah, so you can is, call him Shah, it doesn't good, matter. We know yeah. who he is. But it's one of, got the, it's one of the good things the about, about you being, uh, having, speaking German fluently, that's a good thing to know, because Cher, actually, that's quite in, in, uh, better than Shah. Uh, but yeah, he was he was great. <laughs> and then, yeah, as you said, the micro attacks started coming off and we had another, what was the name of the, the chap who I referenced as being like a Eugene Christoph or an Octave Lapise? He had a name that it was so beautifully 1920. It was Quentin Paché. Quentin Paché. Quentin Paché. I mean, that's like 1920s professional cycling. Quentin Paché. Yeah. And it's an amazing move. He, he jumped off from the peloton bridged up went straight by. <laughs> i mean it was just a train crash wasn't it came up went past came <laughs> back then in the meantime you had remy cavagna and the other dude who was with him they caught him then they got orders to be held back then share went off again then they came back past him and then in the meantime behind you had the battle royale which we're all predicting between ineos and jumbo visma slowly kicking off and it began with ineos taking control of the race and they started to kind of dominate. Um, didn't last long. And then all of a sudden, Jumbo Visma on the front. And it was like, ooh, yeah. wow, this is impressive. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, it, re- 
it really you, was. You list through the names of that team because we we spoke about it in the preview, but it's it still blows my mind that team. It's well, it's... yeah. I mean, they've got they've got the they've got the three GC riders, haven't they? Mm. In harness, in perfect harness now. Roglic enjoys favourite status clearly amongst them, but Dumoulin and Kreisvik is incredible support, and they're all three of them potential winners of the Dauphiné, you know, arguably Dumoulin and Roglic both potentially win the Tour de France. I mean, maybe not Kreisvake, but they're incredibly powerful riders and they're working so well together. Um, and in support, Tony Martin had already done his bit on the front in the early phase of the race, so he wasn't involved. But they had Sepkus, who is um, a very, very dependable and capable American climber. I'm a big fan of, victory I'm a big fan of Sepkus, sorry uh, to interrupt. Yeah. I, I'm a big fan of Sepkus because he's one of these American riders that's taken the the less trodden path. You know, he's gone as a modern and gone to a, a, a European team, and he's he's really good. And I, that's all I want yeah. to interrupt with that. Yeah. Nah, and uh, was, do you remember his victory at the Vuelta last year? Yeah, it was. It, it was. Yeah, and that's where I kind of you you see an old school kind of attitude where he wants to go and learn the ropes from a European team, and yet he's still got that winner attitude. He's not given up. He still wants to be something, so he's made a decision. He's not He's not taking the easy road. He's taking yeah. the hard road. And so even when they started to wind it up and Jumbo Visma were going, he was always there in those first three, three riders of that team. And you thought, whoa, yeah. you're, you're, you're the real deal, aren't you? It's like you're, you're not here to make friends. You're not here to prove yeah. anything. You're here to win bike races. And I thought that was really yeah. cool. I like Sepp Kuz. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, in fact, I think every one of the train, apart from Wat van Aert, has won stages at the Vuelta, if not the Vuelta itself. <laughs> um, huh. uh, Robert Hessink being the other one. So he was doing this enormous yeah. Hessink turn. on the. I mean, it's just such a typical Hessink performance today. But it did yeah. kind of like... It just... Hessink actually just delivered the tel- the critical blow to the breakaway's chances because Cavagna's last mm. gasp attack did look dangerous, but it only looked dangerous for a few minutes before yeah. Hessink just brought it brought, brought yeah. it back. And we, we we talked about that in commentary. And just to reiterate to people, this is the first time we've ever attempted to do commentary remotely because of the, yeah. the, the current uh, situation. And thanks to ITV and Timeline and V Squared and all the people, it worked really fluidly. It's not, it'd be much better when we're together, but it was, it was quite good as well because it forces you to really just focus on the race and kind of just find those. I don't think it'll be noticeable. I hope not. Do you think it'll be noticeable that we were apart? No, but I'm a bit worried it's going to be noticeable on this podcast because if you can hear David's voice in a tinny little format coming back through my microphone, that's because I forgot my headphones. <laughs> There's been quite a lot of tech going on today. But yeah, and well, so but going back to that regards, um, uh, Jumbo Visma and what they were doing and then what we were wa- watching unfold in the race. And it's often said that you have the three big stage races in France uh, and they're an escalating through the season is Paris-Nice, Dauphiné, Criterion Dauphiné, and the Tour de France. And what we saw, the first stage of today's Dauphiné was the classic first hard stage of Paris-Nice. And that's where it starts to kick off, but they obviously made it harder. And this is going to be the hardest Criterion Dauphiné that's ever happened 
it ever happened because if today was the easy day you're like oof this is going to get very brutal yeah um they did so much damage Jumbo Visma they they did a lot of damage once again to Team Ineos I mean surprisingly yes I know say surprisingly Chris Froome was 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 out the back pretty early on and he was joined uh, in fairly swift order by um, Jonathan Castroviejo, even as they approached the final climb of the day, which mm. was very short, obviously. It wasn't a big old alpine climb. We'll get those in the days to come. Um, and uh, actually, this time they did, Ineos, the only, I think, benefit, um, Van Baal could offer nothing today either. And no. Thomas finished in the top 30, but didn't, didn't do any he was work. In, he, was in, he was invisible. Yeah. The po- the positive they can take today is the introduction into their Tour de France team, having finished his Italian spell of uh, Michal Kwiatkowski, who yeah. didn't look quite himself at either Strade Bianchi or Milan San Remo, but he's good enough and he's mm. he's got enough pedigree and class to come into this race. And he, he kind of rescued it a little bit for Bernal on one occasion in particular today when it started the attack started on the final climb. Bernal, so that's the, the, I think yeah. that's the own, and the form of Bernal, which was very good again. He finished in third place. Those are the positives that they can take, but the negatives are still pretty, um, mm. pretty all all consuming. I guess you take it in kind of. There's two ways you can take it. There's now only one leader, is Bernal, and yeah, and on a finish like today for him to finish third, he's not going badly, because no. that was uh, when you, you've got the winners, the, the two riders who beat him, they they're they're far different to him, and you know, and so yeah, I, I'm. I do hesitate kind of thinking if they play this right in EOS, this could actually be a good thing for them because they put everything on Jumbo Visma and then just let Bernal do his thing. And you go back to an old school, just one leader, not three, even though they got three Tour de France winners. But anyway, it's stage one of the Dauphiné and we haven't even discussed the rest of the stage yet. Well, let's, I mean, they, they all, they all, all the favourites basically came onto the climb, all vying for position towards the front. We saw them, didn't we? We saw, um, possibly the exception of Adam Yates and Roman Badet, we saw Pino, we saw Quintana, uh, we saw Bernal being moved towards the front. Um, we saw Valverde so dash did, up. Yeah, Valverde did a great dash up. Um, uh, we didn't see much of De Koenig Quickstep. We didn't see much of Julian Alaphilippe no. towards the front, and in the end, he only finished thirteenth and didn't really feature mm. in any of the attacks and towards the sh- which is very surprising actually. But we did see um, attacks on the final climb coming from Rigoberto Uran that was pulled back, uh, but looked good. Mm. And then Alexei Lutsenko um, uh, attacked, and that was the moment that Wout van Aert, where we'd been thinking all along about Roglic or possibly Dumoulin or even Stephen Kreisweik at one point. Um, we suddenly realised Anna Van Aert is still there. And if you get within 100 metres of the finish line and he, or a couple of hundred metres, he's going to win the bike race. And it doesn't matter how steep it is towards the end. And uh, it was just after Alexei Lutsenko's attack. That's when Van Aert went. Yeah, I was quite embarrassed by that because I was listening through everything and watching, the, watching this all unfold. And then he, because I was talking, well, MP Valverde didn't even cross my mind that Van Aert would be there, which is totally <laughs> stupid of me. But um, there's two things to that in the sense that, as you just said about Philippe, and this is when you have a rider like that that that's on a, an amazing wave of form and motivation and belief. Because Philippe probably is tired from Lansan Remo. And normally you get to the team bus afterwards and you discuss and everyone's like, dude, don't worry about it. 
you're tied for Milan San Remo. But it's like when you then have the winner of Milan San Remo won the same stage, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I have to have a rethink about <laughs> this now. And it's, it's a really interesting, and that's where all the psychological games start playing. Because in any other normal situation, to have done what Philippe and Van Aert did in Milan San Remo five days ago, you'd expect them to be tired today. And the normal thing is what happened to Philippe today. Now, Wout Van Aert yeah. just ripped it to pieces, and you're like, okay, uh, so I'm not tired. He's just better than me yeah. at the moment. <laughs> yeah. And that's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. That's a big wake-up call. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Other performances of note in the top 10, just looking down the riders who came across the line, fast finishing Tadej Pogacar. Yeah. Right on the heels of Alejandro Valverde. He finished in fifth place. In fact, with the exception of Chris Froome, if he even was a GC rider at the Dauphiné, he certainly isn't anymore. He's lost time, but he's the only um, GC rider who has lost time. Everyone else was was pretty much there. Um, a, a Another good performance from Egitoala Mondial's uh, Benoit Confoy, who uh, is a very promising young climber. Um, and one to watch out for as the Dauphiné progresses. And maybe it won't all be about Romain Bardet. Um, and uh, Guillaume Martin continues to show that he's in good form as well from Cofidis, finishing in 10th. Naira Quintana was comfortably there in 12th. And Emmanuel Buchmann, who crashed earlier on in the day, finished in 16th place, two ahead of Bardet and Pino and Davide Formolo. So they were all kind of there or thereabouts. But the really kind of, I think, eye-catching name, apart from White Van Aert, obviously, uh, and because he doesn't quite fit in that company, really, is Daryl Impey. Mm. Um, and the way he was closing on White Van Aert was super impressive, I thought. Yeah, Daryl is a weapon of a biker. I mean, I'm good for family friends with him because he lives here in Drone and our kids hang out and do things. And I've known him for, for close to 10 years. And we forget when he came on the scene, no, nobody wanted him. And he's been a real grafter and fought himself through the ranks. And... He is one of the most underrated bike racers in the world. I mean, just on so many different levels. And I think today, it's uh, it kind of goes to show, and especially as he signed the deal to go and row captain for Israel Startup. And he'll have done that for a couple of reasons, I think. One, it's uh, finally he'll have a South African leader. And maybe this is also, is, I, I don't know, there's a lot of different things to that. But I, I got a lot of time for Daryl. And I think... Um, I'd have liked him to win today, but you can't beat Wout van Aert. But moving on to something else is... Um, I just got to pick you up on one thing, David, before yeah. you move on. Um, you mean Chris Froome, who was born in Kenya and races under a British licence, but he's a South African leader. <laughs> yeah, I think they'll, they'll buy into that. Yeah, he that. kind of is, he kind of is. Well, they yeah. both live African. in Africa. They spend their they'll winters take, together well, in Well, they'll be African, won't they? They'll be yeah. African, so which is nice. I, I'm, yeah. I'm totally... I, I buy into that. I, that's fine. They okay. can do that. Um, but uh, one of the things, that, the, the little uh, jesting we had before, you had a moment of doubt before today's commentary about your um, your absolute commitment to a belief from a year ago <laughs> that Peter Sagan would never win a bike race again. And uh, you, oh, actually, you, uh, you had a panic. I had a little, David, I had a little wobble. <laughs> a little, I, but um, I did, I suddenly thought, oh God, because you're right and you said it in the commentary. That was a Peter, we roll back a couple of years ago, yeah. that was a Peter Sagan finish. That 20 metres, you know, 20 metres, yeah, easy. We'd open the Tour de France road book and we'd go, ooh, it's one of those sort of stages, yeah. Peter Sagan, and yeah. you know, yeah. that he'd win. Um, so I did have a bit of a wobble, and then, in fact, I had such a wobble that 
we were even figuring out how yeah. we were yeah. going to commentate. You know, the, I, the I said, I said, I said for the first time ever because for obviously all all of our listeners don't know how it works ned is the lead commentator and he always takes the last 800 meters a k to do the emotional crescendo to the finish and and i thought you know what ned for the first time ever if peter sagan looks like he's going to win i'll take it for you (laughs) so just to save your kind of your (laughs) self-respect because i'll carry that one for you and honestly when it does happen because it's got to hopefully it's got to happen one more time you're gonna have to just tap my knee and go. You have this one. You Be- take this one. You Nick. take this one. You take this home, David. I'm out <laughs> of here. I'm out. Leave. Just stand up and walk out. <laughs> but then I did, so I had a I had a major wobble. I had a major wobble about an hour before we started commentating, thinking, "Oh God, I've got it." And then I suddenly remembered, "Wow, Van Art is on the start list." And the one thing we know is that probably Peter Gant. Probably, probably he might win another bike race. You know, there's every chance yeah, that yeah. the great again yeah. will win. A, you know, at the Belgium Tour. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> the Tour of Britain. I don't, um, oh, you said it. I didn't want to say that. <laughs> it was in my but, head. But, but he won't. He all right. There's a, I'm just going to double down. No, Go. I'm going to. No, I'm not stepping away from my prediction. My prediction holds. Um, but I'm giving, you know, I'm saying, I'm saying why it's even stronger now. Any race that they line up together in, well, he's not going to win against Wat Van Aert. Not, it's not going to happen. And perhaps he knew that today, and he went, "Oh, today, I not today, not so much a race." Hey, yellow guy. No, no, the yellow guy's in the race. You don't. I say, you say, go to the Dauphiné for the first time in your career, and I say, okay, but only if yellow guy's not there. I come here to France, and yellow guy there. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go back to the hotel. So I think that's what happened today. He'll go again. Yeah, he'll go. He'll just wait. Um, He'll just just play it correctly. Right. So, yeah. So that's the race. David, before before we... We have got a little bit of other business today. Yeah. We'll come to that in a second. But um, you spoke really well. If any of you watched the highlights show that went out on ITV, um, uh, you spoke really well in that. Or indeed, if you're possibly even listening to this podcast before the ITV show. I hope we haven't spoiled it for you. (laughs) But um, I don't know how that's going to work. No, we can't do that. Legally, (laughs) but um, (laughs) we'll think that through. Um, But uh, uh, yeah, no, David. In the commentary, you spoke very interestingly and very movingly about um, the events of two thousand and three. Now, the the penultimate—no, not penultimate—third from last climb uh, today was named the Monte Andrei Kivilev, and Andrei Kivilev. for those of you who don't know, uh, was a teammate of David's in 2000, of yours, David, in 2003, a coffee disc rider, who lost his life in a crash, quite a strange crash, the way you described it, at precisely this point in the road um, uh, on the outskirts, quite close to Saint-Étienne. And it was his death, because he hit his head, that uh, resulted in the rule change about mandatory wearing of helmets. And um, he was obviously someone you knew, you knew fairly well, David, as and um, I mean, I don't want you to do the whole yeah. commentary again. Yeah, but yeah, just, no, no. just remind us who Andrew was. It's fine because it's, it's interesting because I hadn't I hadn't thought about that for many years. I mean, I come from a, a very a dysfunctional pro cycling background in the sense that three of my teammates from that time are dead for different reasons. Um, Gomon Vandenbroek, Kivilev, Kivilev died in a crash. Uh, it was nineteen ninety nine, wasn't it? Um, I think was it nineteen ninety nine. What, sorry, Kivilev the, the is the year. rider we're talking about now. So yeah, Kivilev's crash Kivilev. was in 2003, David. 2003. So yeah, so oh yeah, so 2003. Yeah. So yeah, I was confused with um, 
all the stuff that I was dealing with the team at the time. 2003, um, said Kivalev, I'd been a teammate in Cofferty's for two or three years. And yep. he was a Kazakhstan rider. And so uh, what happened with, at that time, the Kazakhstans made their base in France, like uh, the British riders do, France or Belgium. And so they all base themselves in Saint-Étienne, Saint-Étienne, same as um, Binokarov. And so he was the kind of first generation. So he was the same generation as me, 1999, etc. And so that whole area was their home. And so when Paris-Nice in 2003 was coming there, it was his home race, Kivilev. And he had his, his family there, his newborn kid. And he was one of the favorites for one of the big stages because he was getting really good. He'd finished uh, fourth in the Tour de France in 2002, I think. 2001. Right. 2001. Yeah. So, yeah, he's correct. a very good bike rider. Uh, and it was just in a bunch going up a hill into this finish that we had today, very similar, very hilly ro- roads. And going uphill, he was trying to get past somebody and got caught out and flipped over and landed on his head now taking into account that 75 percent of the peloton at the time weren't wearing helmets because everyone was so macho and so we don't need helmets uh it was kind of one of those moments which was quite pivotal because it wasn't about whether you uh it wasn't compromising your ability to ride a bike it was that this accident could happen at any time and it was the tragedy of kivalev's death from that uh, accident on the roads that we're on today which they literally raced up which they've now named that climb after which is why every single pro bike racer wears a helmet now and it was a it was amazing i remember i was in valencia and they uh, at a different bike race and they told us oh andre had a really big crash today and he's in hospital and you guys and this is actually for all, all credit due they said do you guys want to race tomorrow when they told us that he died and we were like yeah we'll race tomorrow because we just didn't understand what to do. But then the team was pretty loyal to it, and then the whole peloton decided to start wearing helmets after his crash, uh, which I thought was amazing. Not because of any rules, not because of regulations. The whole peloton decided to start wearing helmets, and then we had different rules that took us a long time to get to where we are now. That's right. Mm. Yeah. I think the first race that where it was actually mandatory, according to the regulations, was, that was in May, so a couple of months afterwards at the Giro d'Italia. But I didn't realise that the... The peloton just switched anyway of their own volition. Yeah, I, that's but always that's always I, been. I, I, and just a, just a, sorry to interrupt. Just a, I've always no, been no. this great believer that the peloton decides, and if the peloton decides, it's not about the powers that be. And you need a moment like that for us to go. Okay, so it, it can happen like that. Okay, we'll do it. But then just to just make it a bit more jovial, in the sense that we kind of did it, but we didn't. <laughs> so I what was going <laughs> to say. So there were a couple of years where. You could take your helmet off on the final climb yeah. of a, a day with an uphill finish. Oh, it was which, turned... bearing in mind what you've just told me about Kivilev's crash. Yeah, I know. It makes zero sense. Yeah, he crashed um, an uphill. Yeah. So you'd have, um, for, for people that don't know, uh, we would have uh, a team helper, a staff member that would be the bottom of the... You were allowed to wear a helmet. You had to wear a helmet through the whole day. But if there was a summit finish, you had permission... Mm-hmm. Uh, through the UCI rules, to take your helmet off for the last climb, which meant you could just throw and they it. Did and they did? Yeah, you did. So, so you'd have a, so you'd have a, ta- a staff member at the bottom of the climb, one poor lackey that had to catch all your helmets, and and then you'd race up the last climb. 
and as you said, the ultimate irony is is that Kivilev died on an uphill. And so eventually, and it was that halfway house, so then eventually we got to the point where wearing a helmet is completely normalised. But that's all due to the climb the guys raced over today, which, uh, Ned, you pointed out to me, it's now called uh, Mont Kivilev. So, yeah. yeah, there you go. There's a story behind that. And um, it's, a great, it's a great part of France, actually, even if I can't put it on a map. <laughs> it is a great part of France. <laughs> uh, and y- you said... And it just seems steep. It's ste- steeped in racing history. That part of the world, um, often for all the wrong reasons. Uh, it was in Saint Etienne Hospital that Andre Kivilev lost his life. It was to Saint Etienne Hospital that Chris Froome was airlifted off the Dauphiné last year, and they operated on him and they saved his life. And it was in Saint Etienne Hospital where the great Roger Rivière, who'd crashed very close to there hmm. as well, fought for his life. So. These are dangerous roads, but they are, they go to, the, and you talked earlier about Quentin Pache um, being an old school sort of name from the 1920s, the, the guy who attacked today from B&B Hotels, Vitel Concept. Um, uh, the, when the races come through this part of the world, it feels like you're watching it a bit in black and white. It feels valorous or something. Yeah. Is uh, that the right uh, word? Uh, yeah, 100%. And I think it, it, it feels, um, it feels expeditionary. It feels kind of there's very few yeah. people at the side of the road. It's bike racing yeah. for the sake of bike racing. It's they go left, they go right, they go up, they go down. The roads are small, they're rough. There's there's no towns, there's no cities. There's, if they are, they're they're very provincial. Uh, Saint Etienne yeah. in this part of the France is it's the hardest bike racing, and it's it, it's it's and and it's kind of imprinted on bike racers' minds. That's why I brought up. This idea, which when you do Paris Nice, and you obviously race from Paris to Nice, the first three stages, when it's crosswinds, we know we know exactly what's going to happen. But when we get into Clermont-Ferrand, Saint-Étienne country, this is when we start racing, and this is the hardcore stuff. And it was a, I, I loved that today watching the first stage doing a classic kind of Clermont-Ferrand, Saint-Étienne, uh, border, border, Massif Central kind of bike racing because this is where. The best stuff happens. All right, let's take a break. And then I've got a little bit of un- uh, any other business. So I want to run your way, David. So there's lots of differences about the way we're commentating. You're in a hotel room in Girona. I'm in a studio in, in Ealing. And one of the big differences, David, and it'll, you know, we're not in France. We're not following the bike race around. You and I can't go around... Uh, mincing around chateaus and cathedrals and sort of uh, getting out and seeing the world or seeing the wonderful Le Corbusier chapel that we saw a couple of years ago in the Vosges Mountains, and I'm missing that big time. My commute takes me across London, from West London to South East London every day. And yesterday when I came in here for a bit of a rehearsal, I stopped off on the way through central London at um, because my eye was caught by a courtyard at Guy's Hospital. Uh, which is, I mean, Guy's Hospital itself is really old, just near the Shard in London Bridge. And this courtyard is beautiful, and it was empty, and I just, I was quite tired, because I'm not very good at riding my bike, so I just wanted to sit down for a bit. And it was only when I was sitting in the shade that I noticed a, a blue plaque on the side of the wall. And I went up, and I looked at the blue plaque, um, and, uh, and it said the following words. I'm just trying to find it on my phone now so I can read it absolutely accurately. Um, Where's it gone? Here it is. 
Ludwig Wittgenstein, 1889-1951, preeminent Viennese philosopher and mathematician, worked incognito at Guy's Hospital Pharmacy as a drugs porter and ointment maker from 1941 to 1942. Ludwig Wittgenstein. And um, one, it, this got me thinking. One, I don't know enough about Wittgenstein, who is, um, to all intents and purposes, people say, generally speaking, unopposed, he is the greatest and most important philosopher of the 20th century, who lived most of his life in Britain. Um, so I thought I'd better try and find out a little bit about his philosophy, and I basically failed, and I was wondering whether you could help me at all. I've got a little couple of pointers, because that seemed important to, to know. But then I, I thought, I, what, was he, what was he doing working as a hospital porter? And so I found out a little bit about that, that he just wanted to do this sort of job incognito and experience the world from another perspective completely. And he was friends with the um, venerable personage who ran Guy's Hospital at that time, who just smuggled him into the, this job. And he, as I say, he, no, he was a famous man, but no one could believe that it, it, that was actually him handing around on the wards the drugs and everything. And apparently he went around the wards telling people not to take the drugs. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> it's like, but it, nothing's changed. It it also got me thinking and wondering. I wo- I worked I worked in my early twenties as a hospital porter. Not an, not an ordinary hospital porter. In the, I was hired as a high status hospital porter. David, I worked for an entire summer nice. for months um, in uh, King's College Hospital as a uh, operating theatre orderly, and I used to have to um, swab up, mop up the blood post operation. And I used to have to um, accompany patients to and from the theatre with a qualified medical practitioner like a nurse. Um, but I also used to have to, um, I used to have to occasionally take away and remove amputated limbs and take them to the incinerator. And I, 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 I actually, that. I actually loved the job. It was kind of amazing. Um, but I was wondering, because I've, I've done lots of mad jobs in my life, and I was wondering whether you have ever done any job other than the job that, of being a professional bike racer and then all the stuff that we know you've done subsequently yeah uh, yeah yeah i did because i was always um i suppose that's my parents although i, I come from a, a, a middle class upbringing i had to earn everything i had to earn my i had to pay for my bikes i had to um I had to pay my way. I never had to earn the money for my first car. There was always everything was... So my jobs from when I was living in England as a 11-year-old, 12-year-old, I cut lawn, washed cars, buy my first proper bike. <laughs> and I did that for a year and a half. So this gets super... This is the kind of the level of my psychopathy, if you like, or just commitment to a cause. We lived in a, a village called Shabington. And so... Uh, we didn't have much money at that point in our lives. And so I would, I did paper rounds, two paper rounds. I did uh, go knocking on doors, washing cars, cutting lawns. <laughs> and I kept all my money. And then I put this huge chart on my ceiling where I could, I had how much my bike was going to cost and how much work I was going to have to do to get there. So I had six months of doing this to buy that bike. Oh, and I was twelve years old. Such a David Miller thing. So, you had a chart. So every so, <laughs> so every night, so every night I'd lay down and I had lay on my ceiling, which I'd then kind of stand up and fill in how close I was getting to be able to buy the first bike. 
Brilliant. And then that first bike was then all. Then I did I in Hong Kong. I I peeled potatoes in a, a in this kind of shop in Sai Kung on Saturdays. <laughs> uh, so I'd peel potatoes every Saturday. And then uh, when I was when I didn't go to art college, I stacked shelves at a supermarket at Tesco's for three months. Excellent. So, I'm actually I'm so, mightily yeah. relieved that you've done some basket case jobs as well and some uh, yeah I've done some basket case jobs yeah <laughs> I, I've 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 um I've built frames been worked in a frame shop making frames for did, did you get people. did you manage to save up the, all the money for the bike in the end all the money and, yeah, and I was and killing I, it I, I'm not I'm going to ask this question on behalf of some of our listeners mm. I'm not remotely interested in the answer and you'll believe mm. me when you mm. hear the question yeah. but there'll be people wanting to know. What was the bike that you bought? Uh, it was a Marin Bear Valley. Uh, I bought it from the Cyc- High Wycombe Cycle Care. And it was the only way I could afford it. It was uh, 1991 or 1992. It was a year, it's an old model that they gave me for a super deal. Marin Bear Valley. It was black and gold, like the Lotus. I loved it. <laughs> Actually, oh, that so, sounds pretty good. <laughs> That sounds pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Then, so, yeah, yeah. Now, I, was, uh, I kind of, was, the good thing my parents did was always made me add to earn it. So, very yeah. Good. Very good. Wittgenstein yeah. was a dude. Really yeah, was. I'm just trying to think. Cause so, I, because I, he talks about this and I love Wittgenstein, but I can't. Oh, there, so, I'm just looking through his quotes and one of them is, only describe, don't explain. Oh, man. That's like, show, don't tell. But it's there's so many things, and I and I think what I my memory of if it is I read a book, and I'm, I'm this is going to be an absolute nightmare for me to find, where somebody uh, it's a serial killer who bases all their kills on Ludwig Wittgenstein and how he would kill them. Huh. Yeah. So well, I've got to find it. And I, I mean, his his life itself sounds like a a work of fiction. You know, he was born in fantastic mm. wealth in Vienna. I mean, just astronomical wealth. Three of his brothers committed suicide, and at one point, mm. he in his life had suicidal thoughts as well. But fr- from what I can make out of his philosophy, it's full of complete clarity. Like that quote you just came out with. I love this that I mm. put on Twitter last night. That the seventh of his main thesis is he only wrote one, basically one, philosophical tract. Um, which he wrote when he was a prisoner of war in 1917. But his seventh main thesis reads, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. Which I thought was lovely. Yeah. Um, yeah. People and completely it's, worship it's him. A, I'm, a big, so I've, I'm a big fan of um, philosophy to, a, to that degree. And it's kind of, in many ways, it's, it's kind of um, pseudo-philosophy and the learning is not, those different things but at the moment one of the persons are persons wrong word alan watts i find absolutely amazing who's and alan watts? he was a he alan watts he he's a brit he didn't win the became, 100 meters in the moscow olympics did he it's not that <laughs> no he didn't it's if you just uh, just go uh, for our listeners go onto youtube and just just kick off alan watts yeah. and it's um his voice is amazing but he he's very much deep into eastern philosophy and so the eastern philosophy is uh is from taoism to buddhism to just just the general essence of life that transcends this concept of religion 
and it's very much more about the self. And so if, you, if you've got an opportunity, I'd definitely go and look into Alan Watts and it's probably somebody would then say, well, you know, it's... But it's, um, it's I think, very relevant to where we are today. Uh, uh, that philosophy, the Eastern uh, concept of what existence is. Because Wittgenstein is very much, uh, I think, a Western view of life. Sure. But if sure. you go to Alan Watts, you go to Alan Watts and it becomes an... an eastern point of view which is i think uh, uh it's got a lot more uh, depth to it well i suggest this david because let's, let's wrap things up now but i suggest just ju- judging by the tone of both of our voices now that we are slightly out of our depth here um and i'm reminded a little bit on, as the, the uh, of our original, <laughs> i know what you're going to say our, our original our original um inquiry when we were doing the the podcast during paris into the world of astronomy um we were somewhat out of our depth there as well or was that when we were doing the Vuelta I can't remember um, but I felt I over the course of the race I felt that we actually n- learned a lot you know about um, d- what the uh, dwarf stars and all that sort of thing and we, l- we learned a lot so I think we should set ourselves the task of the course of the Dauphiné of you know learning what we can about Wittgenstein and, and Alan Watts and as many other things and, and I think we should keep it I think we should keep it going because I think it's what our I think I it's what our listeners want David apart from anything else I'm very happy to do that. I'm very happy to go into it and uh, find that book and Brilliant. and get back on point with Wittgenstein and yep. also be able to explain Alan Watts better. That would yep. be good. I'm all and if anybody, as you said, if we have a John Noonan, exactly. our, uh, our 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 resident um, astrophysicist, are there any philosophers? If we have a, are there any philosophers out there? Please reach out and yep. come on yep. and explain the difference between Wittgenstein and Watts. Brilliant. Uh, that would be great. It would be great. Yeah. It would be great. Um, and tomorrow, we'll talk about bike racing again. <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 